compassionate and kind and forgiving and redemptive God, um, first of all. And we thank you, secondly, that that love has been directed toward us. And we can put our hope in you, not in ourselves, not in what we have done, um, but in Christ alone, in the blood of Christ alone. And we thank you so much that you are compassionate and slow to anger and abounding, not just in love, but in steadfast love. Uh, We ask that you would press these things upon our heart. Help us to understand who you are, God. We love you. We long to worship you. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Bethany. Uh, Just so you guys know, for those of you with uh, children, uh, they are more than welcome to stay here. We encourage it. um, But they are also more than welcome to jump into our a uh, little nursery room that's over there in room, oh, what is it? Anybody know? It's the third room on the left. Go down the door, third room on the left. There is, uh, both of those rooms actually are open, so if you get uh, maybe a little too hot, uh, if you get into a place where you feel like you can't hear, um, there are huge, they're called Promethean boards, they're amazing, they're like enormous TVs uh, that are uh, streaming the live stream. So you can go into those rooms with your children. You can go into those rooms uh, by yourself if you want to get away from the heat uh, or from the fire engine, uh, if you would like to. Um, So those are those rooms. I'm sure my son is very, yes, he is. He's not looking at me. He's looking at the fire engine. He's very happy. And he knows that we are supposed to pray for the fire engine as it goes by. All right, would you guys go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. As I said earlier, we are going to uh, do our best to just kind of shorten these services. So we're going to take Jonah 4 in a couple different sermons because we're going to go a little bit slower through them uh, because of time and because of the heat constraint, because of everything that's going on being outside. So we want to make sure that we get everything that we can out of this book, out of this chapter. So we want to just take it uh, little chunks at a time. Jonah chapter 4, if you guys are turning there, of all of the books in the Bible, Jonah has the most unusual, unexpected, and overlooked final chapter in any book of the Bible. It's, it's so strange. In fact, the ending of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4 is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is true, why it's not made up. It's not a made-up book. And one of the reasons why we know that is if this were a made-up book, Jonah chapter 4 would not be in it. You wouldn't write Jonah chapter 4 if you were making up the story of Jonah because Jonah chapter 3 ends the story of Jonah. Here's a prophet who disobeys God, and this prophet goes to uh, Nineveh finally through the belly of a whale, the belly of a fish, goes to Nineveh, preaches the gospel, people get saved, Amen and amen, we're done. But the book doesn't end there. It ends in chapter 4, and that's further evidence that this is a real-life account. This isn't a made-up novel. There's so many lessons to be understood from chapter 4, but right off the bat, one of the main lessons that I think that we get from chapter 4 is that God cares about the heart of his workers just as much, if not more, than the work itself. God cares about the heart of the workers doing the work of ministry just as much, if not more, than the the work itself. And Jonah, who is the worker in God's economy here, 
God's going to go after his heart. God's going to go after his heart because Jonah is going to go after God's grace. He is going to uh, begin an all-out assault on God's grace. And so we're going to look at that this morning in verses 1 through 4. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Read it with me as we go through it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and you are one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Father, we, we ask yet again that you would focus our hearts and our minds on this text, focus our hearts and our minds on what Jonah is going to teach us. God, we thank you that he wrote this so many years ago and that you, through your Holy Spirit, uh, inspired him to write these words, to write down these four verses that we're going to study this morning that will enable us to understand ourselves better and to understand you better. God, give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're just going to split these verses up into two categories. There's two sections that you'll see this morning. Number one, you're going to see Jonah's angry demand. And number two, you're going to see God's gracious question. So number one, Jonah's angry demand. This is in verses one through three. At the very moment when God's wrath is turned away from Nineveh, Jonah's wrath is kindled afresh. 600,000 people come to saving faith in God, and Jonah is angry about that. This is like the most reverse countercultural evangelistic effort ever, right? This is the opposite of the church growth movement, right? Where we get 600,000 new converts, and Jonah thinks, that stinks. This makes no sense. This reaction is shocking. We would expect the chapter to read that Jonah goes home to Israel, jumping and leaping, excited with joy that God saved people. And yet, he's angry. Literally, the word in verse 1, it literally reads this. It was evil, a very great evil to Jonah, and it burned to him. It was evil. My Bible says it greatly displeased Jonah, but literally it says that Jonah calls God's actions evil. He says, God, what you have done is evil. It's wrong. Why is Jonah so angry? There's a, a book that was not published in the United States, and I can't get my hands on it. It's actually in India. It was published in India, and it was called uh, What's Eating Jonah? What's Eating Jonah? We got a fish that eats Jonah earlier in the book, but now we have an emotion. Something's eating him up inside. It burns within him with anger. What is it? Let me give you three reasons why I think Jonah is angry. Two of them are a little bit more implication, speculation. One of them is cl crystal clear according to the text. Number one, he's angry because his political enemies and his racial enemies are still alive. He's angry because his political and racial enemies are alive. He hated these people. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, 
He hates them, both on a political level, because he knows that God had said they were the ones that were going to come in and destroy Israel. So he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh, because if Nineveh gets saved, then Israel has the chance to be destroyed by this Assyrian power. They're also his ethnic racial enemies. We talked earlier in this book about the aspect of racism, and we talked a little bit about the aspect of uh, nationalism. It's not wrong to love the country you're a part of. It's not wrong to enjoy the ethnicity that you were born as. But when those become pride in your heart to look down on other nations or other ethnic groups, that becomes nationalism uh, and that becomes racism. And we see that in this man. This is a prophet of God with a nationalistic heart that hates every other country other than Israel and hates every other people group other than his own Jewish people. Jonah does something that I think we tend to struggle with, especially in an election year. Jonah makes the mistake of thinking that his political enemies are God's enemies. They're not. So I think that's one reason why he's angry. Number two, he's angry because the wickedness of his enemies deserve judgment. He's angry because the wickedness of his enemies deserved judgment. And that's right. He had seen the disgusting evil that they were a part of. He probably knew people even in Israel who were killed by the Assyrians, by the Ninevites. And so he's angry. That's why he said at the beginning, I don't want to go there because I don't want them to live. They deserve judgment. They deserve punishment. They deserve to be destroyed. And they do. But that leads to the third reason why he's angry. He's angry because, number three, God is showing them grace. He's angry because God is showing them grace. The object of Jonah's anger is none other than God himself. God is too compassionate in Jonah's mind. This is a theological issue for Jonah. How can God claim to be a God of justice and allow such evil and violence to go unpunished? This is not right. But here's what Jonah fails to recognize. And it's what every single person who is arrogant in heart fails to recognize. I think we've all done this before. If it were really an evil thing for God to deliver the Ninevites or somebody in your life that deserves judgment and you don't see judgment happening, if it's an evil thing for God to let them live and not destroy them, then it would be an evil thing for God to let you live and not destroy you. Because you have the same wickedness in your heart, but Jonah doesn't see that. He doesn't think that way. He is the exact representation of that older brother in Luke chapter 15, right? You remember the older brother? Prodigal son goes away. In the parable of the prodigal son, prodigal son goes away. And the older brother stays at home. And when the prodigal son comes back, the dad throws a feast, a big, huge party. My son's returned. And the older brother doesn't even come back to the party. And he's out in the field. And the dad goes to pursue him, too. He needs just as much pursuing by the father as the younger brother does. And he runs out to the older brother and he says to the older brother, why aren't you jumping in here? And the older brother says, listen, for so many years, I have been your slave, not your son, I've been your slave, and I have, and he quotes, never neglected a command of yours. I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me what I feel I deserve. Because I think that's exactly what Jonah would say to God right now. I think Jonah would say, God, you should have killed them. I have never neglected a command of yours, and you should have killed them and let me go home knowing that wrath has come on those who deserve it. I've never neglected a command of yours. Y yes, he has. 
He's a prophet who told God, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. This man is a sinner deserving of God's just punishment, and yet he's been given grace, but he doesn't want to give that same grace to the Ninevites. He has already forgotten the grace that he was given. He's already losing the mystery of the pardon by which he lives again in newness of life. He deserved to die when he was thrown over the boat, and yet he lives. Now, there's a lot in this section that I think is absolutely awful. There's a lot that Jonah's doing that I think is wrong and awful. But I want to commend him for two things. I want to commend him for two things in this passage. I think there's two things that I see in this text that I like about what he's doing. Number one, he takes his anger at God to God. He goes directly to God. Instead of just stewing on anger at God, about God, and going somewhere else. No, he takes his questions to God. We studied this in the book of Habakkuk. God is big enough to handle your anger at him. God is big enough to handle your doubts, your questions, your confusion. Just take it to him. Don't take it anywhere else. Take it to him. So, I appreciate that Jonah does that. I think that's wise to do. I think we would learn from Jonah. We would do well to learn from him to do exactly what he's doing. Take your complaints directly to God. The second thing that I love about what he's doing is he's angry at something that is true about God. He's angry at something that's true about God. I have many people talk to me and they say, oh, I don't want to follow God. I don't think he's good. I don't think he's trustworthy. And when I ask them why, they say things like, I, I think predestination election is probably highest on the list. And they'll say something like, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to follow a God who forces people to go to hell. They're angry at God. They don't want to trust God because they, quote, they claim, quote, he forces people to go to hell. That's not even true about God. That's not biblically true at all. There's no passage that says God forces people to go to hell. So people are getting angry at God for something that's not even true about him. Or they say, you know, he predestines and elects uh, certain people to go to heaven and, and they don't have a choice in the matter and, and then God forces other people to go to hell and, and demands and makes and forces other people to go to heaven. That's not even true about the way God predestines and elects people. Predestined and election is a true doctrine and it's a beautiful doctrine, but if you say it's uh, an anger-inducing an anger doctrine and you're angry at God for it and you bring up these descriptions of it that aren't even true about God, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is say, man, I'd be angry at God just like you are, but the good news is what you're saying isn't true about the God of the Bible. And you can show them the God of the Bible. So there are two things in this text that I think are good. Jonah is angry at God, and so he's taking his anger directly to God. And then secondly, Jonah is angry about a true fact of who God is. He's not making something up about God. He's going to quote scripture and say, this is who you are, and I don't like that. Now, that being said, He's in a very precarious position in his anger. So I don't think his anger is justified or right, but I do appreciate what he's doing in the anger that he has. He takes his anger to God. And then he says this in verse 2. He prays to the Lord. This is him taking the anger to God. He says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Was this not what I said? What had, what had he said? 
Uh, he had never explicitly said anything. He hadn't verbalized these words. They were all in his heart. And he knows that God can read his thoughts. He knows that God can read his mind. God can read what's going on in his heart. And so he says, God, I know that you know what I was thinking. And I was thinking that you were going to save these Assyrians, and I didn't want to go to them because I knew you were going to do this. I knew, uh, middle of verse 2, that you're a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness. And you are one who relents concerning calamity. I knew these things about you. Jonah's pulling the old, uh, I told you so with God, right? God, I told you so. I knew it. Uh, by the way, husbands, you can never say this, right? You're never allowed to say this phrase to your wife. I told you so. You know this. This is, this is marriage counseling 101. Husbands, throw that phrase away, right? Even if you are right, which you probably might be, you are right, but you can't say, I told you so, even though you did tell her so. Don't ever, there's no way you can say that. Jonah takes this to God. If we can't do that as husbands, how much more should Jonah not do this as a man speaking to the God of the universe, the creator of the universe? And yet he says, God, I told you so. I was right. God, you were wrong. And then he quotes a passage from Exodus 34. He quotes a beautiful passage. I mean, if you just read, like this is, this is taking verses out of context 101. If you just read... You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. If you just had that in a little Hallmark card, you put it on your uh, refrigerator, that would be beautiful, right? You could just uh, put a border around that. Jonah would walk into your house, he would see that, he would take it off the wall, he'd smash it on the ground. I hate that about God. I hate that about who God is. You see the strange irony here. Jonah is angry while God is slow to anger. But the reality is, if you get angry at something and God doesn't get angry at that same something, then you're just going to get doubly angry, right? Excuse me, God, I'm angry. You should be angry with me. And if he's not, you're going to get even more angry. He quotes Exodus 34. We don't have time to go there. You can just write it down. You remember the context. Uh, Exodus 32, Moses brings the tablets down off of Mount Sinai people of Israel are doing debauched things in idolatry and Moses smashes the tablets down and he says, you know what God, you should just kill everybody, start over. And God says, okay. And Moses goes, time out, shouldn't have said that. Uh, if you wipe us all out, the nations will hear of that. They will know that you are a God who broke his promise because you said that your people were going to go out in the wilderness, they're going to worship you and then they're never going to be blotted out of the face of the earth so you would have broken your promise. And so God says, okay, I, I won't bring judgment. I won't punish them in that way. I won't destroy them completely. And that's when God says these words. I am compassionate, abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger, relenting concerning calamity. That's what Jonah quotes. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the Bible. It's also interesting to note, just a side note, if you write down Exodus 34, verse 6, that's where he's quoting from. Exodus 34, verse 7 says, Yet I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's very interesting because Jonah doesn't quote that portion. Jonah says, I hate that you are a compassionate, gracious God. And selectively says that verse without saying verse 7. He says verse 6 without saying verse 7. We do the same thing. We use the Bible selectively. Satan does that. You remember Satan did that with Jesus? 
He uses the Bible selectively with Jesus to tempt Jesus with the Bible. The Bible's a massive book, so you can kind of make it say whatever you want it to say. If you're reading it out of context, if you're doing things that aren't right with the Bible in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. So Jonah says, I hate the fact that you're gracious. And because of that, your grace is now my biggest enemy. My enemy is your grace. I want to fight against grace. Listen to what Jonah's saying. Jonah's saying, God, I wish you were more like me. I'm more just and righteous than you are. Jonah's rebellion here in chapter 4 is every bit as extreme as his rebellion in chapter 1. So why is Jonah angry with God? Because God is a compassionate and gracious God. And if that is what God is, then that means that's what you and I should be. Compassionate and gracious with those around us who are our enemies. And Jonah does not want to be gracious and compassionate with his enemies. He doesn't want to love those who are unlovely, who have hurt him and offended him. If God is a gracious and saving God, which he is, we should go out of our way to help the world know that about our God. And so my first question to our hearts this morning is, do you love the people around you? Do you love the people, the, the mission field that God has given to you around you? Do you love them? Or are there people in your life, like there were for Jonah, that you say, you have done too much against me, you have hurt me for the last time, this relationship is over, and I wish nothing but the worst for you. And maybe it's not even as radical as that. Maybe it's just, I don't ever want to talk to you again. That's the same heart of Jonah. There's moments in our lives when we're doubting God, we're angry at God, we're disappointed at what God is doing. I don't think that we should be so silly to think that we always want what God wants and value what God values. So I think this morning we should examine our own hearts and ask, honestly, are there places in our own hearts where we disagree with what God wants? We disagree with what God values. We value something else, and we, like Jonah, would say to him, isn't this what I told you? My way's right. Why don't you get on my program? It takes a pretty high level of pride to argue that the grace of God is not a good thing. The only person who will argue this is the person who thinks that they don't need grace. The grace of God is a, is a bad thing only to those people who say, because I don't need it, and I don't want anybody else getting it because I've earned my standing before God, and so therefore you don't deserve grace. You shouldn't get it, but I don't need grace, so grace is a bad thing. We are all self-righteous people. That's the human condition, right? We're all Pharisees. We're all self-righteous people. One pastor says it this way, what the Bible teaches us about ourselves is all to the effect that we're not righteous, we have no means of justifying ourselves, and we have no right to condemn, con to condemn others and be in the right against them. Only a gracious act of God can save us. Brothers and sisters, you know that you are in trouble when you think more of the sins of others than you do of your own sins. You know you're going down a very dangerous road when you think of the sins of others more than you think of your own sins. This results in impatience with people, irritation with people, judgmental spirit and critical spirit with people. The opposite is true. When I think of my own sins more highly than others or more deeply or more intensely than others, when I examine myself 
and I focus on my sins more than I focus on the sins of other people, it tenderizes my own heart. No one gives grace better than those who know that they themselves are in desperate need of it. So can I plead with you this morning? Go before the Lord in confession because your personal confession will fuel your compassion for others. To condemn others is ultimately to condemn yourself because you are a sinner just like the person who hurt you is a sinner. So number one, we see Jonah's angry demand. His angry demand. It's kind of a twofold demand. The first demand is, I was right, you were wrong, and you should apologize to me. The second demand is, would you please kill me? This is verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me because death is better to me than life. Like this is the guy who in chapter two was pleading, would you save me because I'm drowning to death? And now just a couple days later, he's sitting on a hill watching Nineveh and he goes, would you please kill me because life stinks? That's Jonah's angry demands. How's God going to respond to that? This is point number two in our sermon this morning. This is just simply God's gracious question. God's gracious question. Jonah, I believe, is throwing a temper tantrum here. I don't think he's serious. I think he's trying to get God to apologize, right? Oh, oh, poor Jonah. I didn't know that this was such a big deal to you. I didn't know that you were so hurt by my actions. I'm so sorry, Jonah. I'll do what you're asking. I think that's what Jonah's doing, right? I, I think that that's what Jonah's, Jonah's doing because I know that's what I've done. I know that's what you've done. I know you've done that before where you're just like, man, I am so hurt by you and who you are and what you do when they didn't do anything. You just want them to change who they are and what they did. And so Jonah says, I think he's just throwing a tem temper tantrum. Jonah asks for death. How would you respond, by the way, if you're God? Jonah says, death is better to me than life. Um, after everything in the book, uh, a storm, a fish, uh, revival through the message of Jonah, after everything in this book, I think that I probably would have said, hey, I wrote a book called Job, and in that book, towards the end, I asked Job if he knows where the lightning bolts are stored, because uh, I do, and I have my target acquired, and lightning bolts is coming down now. Done. You want death? I'll give you death. It's amazing how God responds to Jonah. This is just staggering. By the way, this reminds us that God is the hero of Jonah, not Jonah, right? God's the hero of this book. If this were a Broadway play, it would say Jonah starring Yahweh in huge letters and then little tiny letters co-starring Jonah, right? He's not the point of this book. The point of this book is Yahweh and he's on display right here in verse four when he asks a question. Jonah brings a ridiculous statement before the Lord and instead of God saying, how dumb are you? He asks him a question. He graciously asks him a question. By the way, he loves doing this. God loves asking questions. He asks four questions of Adam and Eve after they have sinned in the garden. That's a question I get a lot, by the way, from my, uh, my students here at school. They'll say, hey, wait a second, time out. If God knows everything, why does he ask Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? He knows. Wait, does he not know? 
God knows everything. He's pulling the, the same thing that my parents used to do with me of, uh, hey, Patrick, is there something that you want to tell me? Is there something you want to tell me? I want you to do this on your own volition. I want to draw it out of you, but I want you to be the one that's doing this on your own. Adam and Eve, where are you? You tell me what's going on. He, he loves doing this, drawing out questions, or drawing out the heart through questions. He asked two questions of Cain. Cain, do you do well? Your countenance has fallen. Do you do well? He asked a question of Judas. He looks Judas right in the face and asks him a question. And I think that was the last opportunity that Judas had face to face with the Lord to understand what repentance would look like. And he doesn't repent. He asks three questions of Peter. Remember, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he asks one question of Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul slash Paul. Jonah is asked a question by God. God appeals to him instead of blowing him away with anger. And here's a simple question. How's that anger thing working out for you, Jonah? (laughs) How's it going? Do you have a good reason for it? Can you explain the rationale behind why you're so mad right now? Is anger getting you what you want? God knows that Jonah is angry at his grace. And so God's going to ultimately, in these last few verses, which we'll look at next week, he's going to explain that my grace isn't confined just to Israel. It's also not confined just to Nineveh. I'm giving you grace, Jonah. The same grace that I gave to Nineveh, I'm giving to you right now. Nineveh has demonstrated more repentance than Jonah, and yet Jonah's getting grace here as well. And Jonah doesn't answer. He can't answer. That's a great question, and he refuses to answer it because he knows that would draw out his heart and it would show his depravity on display. By the way, just a side note, in biblical counseling, in relationships with others, and especially in parents. Parents, this is a great learn from God. This is a great thing to do. Ask your kids questions to draw out their heart. Why are you angry? Is it good that you're angry? What's the anger about? Ask questions to draw out their heart. God is putting Jonah in a biblical counseling grid by saying, what are you wanting, Jonah, that you're not getting that's making you angry? Or what are you getting, Jonah, that you're not wanting? I would encourage you to ask that question of yourself probably a dozen times a day. I ask that question of myself at least a dozen times a day. When something happens, I get impatient. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? What am I getting that I'm not wanting? I get angry. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? What am I getting that I'm not wanting? I ask that question over and over and over again because the emotions that happen through me are the warning lights that something's going on in my heart. An idol has been hit. That's what God's asking. Jonah, when you're happy, why are you happy? Jonah, when you're angry, why are you angry? Jonah, when you're sad, why are you sad? I ask the exact same question to you. I think God's asking us that question this morning. Have you been angry this last week? Why? Have you been sad this last week? Have you been hurt or offended this last week? Why? Do you have good reason to be Or is God allowing your idols to be bumped such that he can show you you're clinging to something way too closely, way too tightly? 
That's what Jonah's explosive anger is showing us. He's focused on something that has replaced God entirely as his main source of joy, love, and satisfaction. Jonah is saying, I will not serve you, God, if you don't give me this. If you don't give me justice in the way I demand it, I'm not going to serve you. One pastor says, as long as there is something more important than God to your heart, you will be, like Jonah, both fragile and self-righteous. If there's something in your heart that's more important to you than God, you will be a fragile person, easily offended, easily hurt, and you will be very self-righteous. Whatever it is, whatever that issue is, that idol is, it will create pride and an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it. It will also create fear and insecurity. It's the basis for your happiness, and therefore, if anything threatens it, you're going to be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. That's what's happening in these verses. We are seeing a battle of worship. As your identity, uh, your identity is in what you love the most, and therefore, your identity is who you are long before what you do, long before your activities. You're a worshiper. The question is just what are you worshiping? Something's always ruling your heart. The question is what is ruling your heart? Jonah's anger is fueled by what's ruling his heart. He's wanting something that he's not getting. He's not getting his way. And yet, God in his kindness still lavishes grace on Jonah. He's given grace in chapter 1, he's given grace in chapter 2, he's given grace in chapter 3, and he is giving grace again in chapter 4. You see, Jonah's angry response, or Jonah's angry demand and God's gracious question in response. I just want to end our time this morning by asking four four heart questions. Four questions of your hearts as we look through the lens of this book at ourselves and our priorities and our desires. Number one, are you at war with God's grace? Are you at war with God's grace? Do you feel that he's given grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it? And therefore, he's, in calling you to do the same thing, you bristle or you fight against him. He's given grace to somebody that you don't feel earns or deserves that grace, and so therefore, you bristle against that relationship and bristle against God asking you to extend grace? Is there someone in your life that you're not reconciled with, that you feel anger towards or bitterness towards? Is there somebody in your life that you struggle in that relationship with because you feel like Jonah, they're not deserving of grace? Again, it takes a pretty high level of pride to argue that the grace of God is not a good thing. Only the, pers- the only person who's going to argue this is the person who thinks they don't need God's grace. So would you go back to the cross and realize you're alive only because of the grace of God. So how could you not give that grace to others? This is that parable of the man who owes so much to the king, and the king forgives him. He goes out, and he finds somebody who owes him a decent chunk of change, a decent amount of money. And he says, pay me back, and if you don't, you're going to debtor's prison. When the king finds out, I forgave you so much, and you went out and would not forgive this man, he throws him into prison and is tortured until he gets the right understanding of what grace looks like. Second question. Is there someone that you have not shown grace to that God is calling you to show grace? 
Is there someone in your life that you have not shown grace to that God this morning is bringing to your heart, bringing to your mind, and saying, you need to extend grace, because I already have. I've given grace to them. You need to give grace to them too. If God is a gracious and saving God, which he is, then we should go out of our way to help the whole world know what that grace looks like. And it starts in our community, in the relationships that hurt us the most. It starts there. Number three, do you see yourself in desperate need of God's grace? Do you see yourself in desperate need of God's grace? Or are you self-righteous? I think we can all answer, yes, we're self-righteous people. But this morning, do you see yourself in desperate need of grace? Or do you think, I need a little bit, but not that much, because I'm not that bad? Again, when I think of my own sins and I see them as the greatest of all sins, I feel that I am the greatest of all sinners, it tenderizes my heart, makes me compassionate towards others. The opposite, if I feel like others' sin is way greater than mine, then I am angry, impatient, judgmental, and critical. Finally, the last question that I think this text would raise before us this morning. What idols in your own heart have been brought to the surface through the bumping of this season of life? This season has been insane, right? This season has been crazy. It sure bumped a lot of idols in my life, like control. We're completely out of control. Every week, we have no idea what's going to happen with church. Out of control. Church. I've told you before, this has been so hard for me because I'm fine with my week being completely chaotic as long as I know Sunday never is. Sunday is always the same. It's the Lord's Day. I put my anchor in that day, and I love that day. That day fuels my entire week. But now that Sunday itself has become chaotic, it feels like every day is chaotic. I have no anchor. Patience. Trusting the Lord. I mean, there's so many things for me personally that this season has bumped into idols that I have. And I just want to plead with you this morning. What idols has this season, maybe since March, what, what idols has this season drawn to the surface in your own life? When you're happy, why are you happy? When you're sad, why are you sad? Look at the values in your own heart and confess idolatry for what it is because personal confession will lead us to the greatest compassion we could imagine. Let's press in with unity to the grace of God. Please, let's press in with unity. That's why we studied conscience. None of us should ever say we're better than anybody else. That's why we studied that book together. Then, now we're, we're studying gentle and lowly. Why are we studying this book? So that we would see the beautiful compassion of Jesus that is almost too good to be true. May that fuel compassion for one another and unity like never before in our church family. But let's do some heart work this morning. I just want to plead with you. What is God speaking to your heart about that you need to change based on these verses? Based on seeing Jonah. Remember, we are Jonah. We are Jonah through and through. So let's learn as God addresses us, hey, do you have good reason to be angry, to be sad, to be despairing? Do you have good reason? And we will see next week how God finishes out this line of questioning with Jonah in a most amazing, gracious, compassionate way. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your word that shows us the compassion and the grace that we have in Christ. We are just like Jonah. When we don't get what we want, we get angry. And even though we don't have any good reason to be. God, I pray that we'd be like Jonah in going to you with our frustrations. May we do so with humility, not in a sense of I told you so. May we wrestle and grapple with the true things that your character is, is shown to be in the word of God. May we do what Jonah's doing of wrestling through true things, not false, fake things, made up things about who you are. God, I pray that this season of just chaos and confusion and unrest in our world politically, socially, racially, that it would really demonstrate to our own hearts what our idols are. And that ultimately we would all sit before the cross, broken, undone, and simply unable to judge others because we're staring at our own sin so much. May we look inward and then quickly look upward to see him who made an end to all of our sin and cling to our great high priest. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.